I'm going to be reading from Acts 15, verse 1 through 21. You can find it in your bulletin. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and require to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from the lips, from my lips, the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done through the Gentiles, through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Angela. Um, I mentioned earlier I was absent-minded, and I was hoping I'd get my act together. I think I've got my act together now. There were three announcements I wanted to make that I forgot. So how bad is that? To our text uh, this morning. Uh, this is going to be our last look at the book of Acts for a while. So uh, we're going to transition to a series kind of connected to Lent. We're actually going to spend some time uh, thinking about worship. And we're going to actually do a, a series of messages on 
the various elements of worship that we practice here at Grace Valley. It's good for us to know why we worship the way we worship. Every church has a liturgy. Every church has an order of service. Why do we have the one we have? We're going to walk through that together uh, over the next few weeks. But today, we're going to finish up our look at Acts for the time being. And we're here, it's, 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 per, it's on purpose that we're here at Acts 15. Because Acts 15, it's right in the center of the book, but it's also the theological center of the book. There's going to be a real transition moving forward after Acts 15. For example, this is the last time we hear from Peter in the book of Acts. Things transition to the life and ministry of Paul and his missionary journeys uh, moving forward. And what we see in this passage here is that there's a crisis in the church. There is trouble in the church that needs to be addressed. And it's so serious that it brings together a meeting of all the heavy hitters of the early church. The apostles, Paul and Barnabas are there, and James and Peter are there, and the elders, these are the first leaders of the early church, are there to deal with a critical issue, the decision of which will shape the future of the church forever and ever and ever. And we're going to look at that issue together. We're going to discover the issue itself, why the issue was so critical, and what the answer, or the remedy, so to speak, to this issue was. Those are the things we're going to look at as we make our way through uh, Acts 15. Now, first of all, what's the issue? What is the problem that they've been dealing with? Verse 1 says, people had come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they had gone on a missionary tour, and they had come back to Antioch, the church that had sent them out. And we looked at the church at Antioch a, a few weeks ago. This, what was unique about this church was this was the first church that was uh, established by Gentile converts to Christianity. So all the other churches up until now had been established by Jewish converts to Christianity. This one had been established by Gentile converts to Christianity. And people had come from Jerusalem. We, we're not sure what these people were. Some kinds of teachers, some kind of, of leader, whatever. And they came up from Jerusalem and they started saying to this predominantly Gentile church... Verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And then it says in verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. That's kind language. Paul and Barnabas heard these teachers coming to Antioch saying that these Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, and they went ballistic. They were furious, they were extremely angry with what was happening. The idea of sharp debate just means that they, thems was fighting words, and Paul and Barnabas, they started fighting. And it got so serious that the church in Antioch sent a delegation to the church in Jerusalem, which was sort of the, the, the head church, in the earliest days of the church, to deal with this issue. Now, what was the issue? What, was, what got Paul and Barnabas so riled up, got them so angry, and got this church in such a, a tizzy that it had to send a delegation and, and, and basically have the first church general assembly meet in Jerusalem? Well, it was this. The issue 
was freedom. Freedom. Spiritual freedom. The spiritual freedom of the Christian was at stake in this fight. Let me explain. When, when these people come up to Antioch and they say that you need to be circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, that word circumcision, the idea of circumcision was kind of shorthand for the Old Testament law. And that law is laid out in most of its detail in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy. And when you go back there, what you discover is, is that God gave the Israelites, the Jewish people, a whole bunch of laws called ceremonial laws that governed every aspect of Jewish life. So for example, just one example, if you touched a dead animal, uh, if you wanted to get into the presence of God and go worship God after having touched the de dead animal, you would have to go through a whole bunch of purity rituals and rites, etc., laid out in the Levitical law in order to be able to return to uh, the tabernacle for worship. And that's just one example of all these laws that were laid down to, to, for them. And if you, I don't know, if, you've, uh, if you're reading through um, the Bible in a year, let's say, right now, you've probably just finished going through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, um, if you're doing the kind of chronological rule uh, year. And, and when you read these laws, they just sound so weird. They sound weird to our ears, all these ceremonial laws. But that's because we, we don't understand the purpose. There were two purposes to these laws. The first one was to demonstrate to the Israelites that God is separate from us, that God is holy, that God is pure, that God is lofty and transcendent and righteous and glorious. And you can't just go into the presence of a being like that, the presence of God, any old way you want. There is a gap between him and us. There is a distance between him and us. We are not pure. We are not holy. We are not lofty. We are not glorious. We are not righteous. In fact, we are sinful. And there is a gap between us and that God that needs to be bridged. It needs to be overcome. And that's what the sacrificial system and that's what the ceremonial system was all about, making us clean, making us able to come into the presence of God. In other words, these laws were meant to show God's people that they needed a savior. They needed a savior. They needed a mediator. They needed someone to bridge the divide. Now, the reason that's weird in our modern culture is simply this. We don't think we need a savior. We don't think we need a mediator. We don't think we need someone to bridge the divide. And I'm not saying you personally. I'm talking about our culture as a whole. In our culture today, we think, look, God should just accept me as I am. We think, look, God, if you're there at all, I've been a pretty good person. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm probably more good than I am bad. I've done right mostly. I know I've screwed up here and there and on occasion, but I, I try to kind of to, to lead a pretty half-decent life, and I'm doing my best at it. And so this, this idea of needing a Savior is just foreign to us. And that is exactly the problem. That's the problem. There is a scientifically proven human 
problem called superiority illusion. And basically what superiority illusion says is that human beings tend to think of themselves as better than they are. So we think that we, we tend to think that we're better drivers than other people and than we really are. We tend to think we're better students. We tend to think we're better spouses. We tend to think we're better whatever. I, I think probably the best illustration I know of is American Idol. Is that show still on? Okay, I'm not totally dating myself, though kind of, because it's like probably in season 38 or something like that. But anyhow, when I watched American Idol a long time ago, you'd have this person come and audition, right? And they would sing, and they were horrible. But they thought they were awesome. And it wasn't until the, the judges, and usually it was one judge who was like really nasty, Simon or somebody like that, who would say, you stink. And they would be all aghast at this revelation that they're terrible. And then, of course, they would say, well, you don't know nothing, and I'm going to follow my dream, and I don't care what you say, I'm getting out of here. And they would cry, and they would run away, and they would say, I'm going to do this anyway. And the point is, is that human beings tend to believe they're better than they are. And did you know that the area in which that human beings that tend to believe they're better than they are the most is? Morality. We tend to think we're generally better people than the average. More moral, more upright, more trustworthy, more truthful. But the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says you and I are worse than we think we are. And the point of the law was to shine the light brightly on our badness. You are more, we like to say here, if you're new to Grace Valley, this will sound weird, but we like to say here, you're more wicked than you ever imagined. Or, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. Because that's what the Bible says about us. And that's what the law was meant to do. That was the first purpose. The other purpose of the law was to keep the Jews culturally separate from the rest of the nations around them. Because you see, God had chosen the Jews out of the world. It says, by the way, in verse 17, uh, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Oh, sorry, duh. Uh, verse 14 um, Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. He's talking about the Jews. Choose his people for his name from the Gentiles. So the people of Israel were meant to be kept separate from the rest of the world because God was going to use them to declare what he was like, who he was like, and what a relationship with him should look like through this nation of Israel. So they were supposed to keep themselves culturally pure in order to keep themselves religiously pure. And if they mixed with the other nations, if they adopted their practices, religious practices and cultural practices, and you got to remember back then, much like today, I don't have time to explain it, but cultural and, and religious practices were like, whoosh, they were melded together. You couldn't separate them. And so if they mixed with the people around them, the true religion would be lost. The people around them would not see in the people of Israel, what God is truly like. And so that's why they kept all these laws to, or were supposed to keep all these laws in order to keep themselves culturally, culturally separated. But here's what happened. The Jews twisted the purpose of the law. 
And it became to them this idea that if because I keep the law, I'm saved. It wasn't God saved me and therefore I keep the law. It was I'm keeping the law, therefore God favors me, God loves me, God saves me. And I'm better, we are better than all the other nations around us. Jesus comes along and he says, I have completely fulfilled the law. I have kept it perfectly, something that you were never, ever able to do. Peter says the same thing in verse 10 when he says, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He's talking about the law and he's saying, look, we couldn't keep the law. I can't keep the law. We couldn't keep the law. We're absolutely terrible at it. Jesus kept all that law for us perfectly, entirely. So what does that mean? You see what this means? Look at verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke? Peter calls the law a yoke. He calls it a burden. And he says, now that we don't have to keep these laws, now that we don't have to to carry them out anymore, that burden has been lifted. We are free. And he says in verse 11, we believe it is through grace, through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And it's so interesting. He says, look, we're saved the same way the Gentiles are. We're in a right relationship with God the very same way they are put in a right relationship with God. You see, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, the yoke to prove yourself is lifted. The burden to keep your nose clean in order for God to love you is lifted The burden of the past is lifted. Some of you are sitting here and living with guilt, guilt upon guilt because of your past, because of things you have done, things you have said, things you have have committed in the past that you believe you still need to pay for, you need to atone for, you need to deal with them, and you are living under the weight of that guilt. And Jesus comes along and he says, look, That guilt is lifted from you. The need for you to measure up, the need for you to to toe the line, the need for you to accomplish the relationship that I have built with you is gone because I've done it for you. The need, the, the burden of the past is gone and the burden of the future is gone too. The the need, that human need to live up to standards. We don't. You're a, oh, yeah, I guess I'll use my name. You're a Vandenbrink. We don't do that. We do this. This is what we're like. The need to live up to the standards of Vandenbrink, whatever that is. I mean, my kid's laughing because he's like, pretty low standards to be a Vandenbrink, but whatever. <laughs> Those standards, they're gone. The need to live up to the expectations of your friends or of your employer, of just society in general, of what you are supposed to be, they're gone. Look, in a traditional culture, you have all kinds of those kinds of of family obligations or community obligations laid upon you that you are expected to uphold and live up to. 
And it can be soul-crushing. You talk to people who grow up in those kinds of contexts. Now you meet people from, from Asia, South Asia, Africa, who still live in these kinds of cultures. And the expectations on them to maintain the family name or the community name or the tribe name is, is absolutely devastatingly harsh. And you never, never know, you know, if you can do it, if you can keep it up, if it, and, and if you are keeping it up. And in our culture, we tell our kids, you know, you can be whatever you want to be. You don't have to live up to any kind of standards but your own. And so the little kid draws up a list and says, I'm going to be a professional athlete and an astronaut and prime minister because I can do anything I want to do, be whatever I want to be. And then as they get older, they find out that they're not very good at sports. So <laughs> cross that off the list. And then they go, oh, man, I'm terrible at math. <laughs> Astronaut's gone too. And oh, I don't really like politics. <laughs> Prime minister's gone too. And you're a failure. And you don't feel like you've lived up to anything, even though the standards were your own. You can't escape it, you see. Unless you embrace the gospel. Because the gospel takes it all away because the gospel says yes you are worse than you think you are you are more wicked than you're ever willing to admit but here's the thing you are also more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope look at verses eight and nine peter says god who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. First of all, he says God knows their hearts. Now this isn't God's, this isn't Peter saying, well God knows that the Gentiles were really sincere. He knows that their heart's in the right place. That's not what he means, because then why, in the, why on earth would he say in the very next verse he had to purify their hearts? What Peter is saying is, is that God knows the heart of man. The truth about our hearts. The truth that we will not admit about ourselves. God already knows that truth. He knows that our hearts are proud, and they're selfish, and lustful, and petty, and resentful, and demanding, and impatient, and grumbling. He knows this about us. He knows this about us, and yet, Peter says, he purifies us. He washes us clean. He takes that away. How does he do that? Well, Jesus didn't just live a perfect life for us, which he did, but he also died what's called a substitutionary death. Here's this person who, who has lived a perfect life. He's never committed a crime ever. There is nothing that anyone, including God, could ever pin on him as deserving God, uh, judgment and justice. And nevertheless, he went as our representative to that cross, paying our debt. Those of you who are weighed down by the guilt of your past, do you understand that you do not understand the cross enough? You don't believe the gospel enough? When you look at the cross, what you are supposed to believe and what I am supposed to believe is that every single sin I've ever committed was nailed to that cross with Jesus Christ and it is remembered by God no more. That's what the cross accomplished. And when we say, I just can't believe that Jesus died for me, you know what we're doing? We're expressing unbelief. 
We're not expressing humility. We think we're expressing humility, but we're not expressing humility. In fact, what we're expressing is a, is a form of pride. The sense that the blood of Jesus Christ, whom God has declared, is enough to wipe away every single stinking sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. And we don't want to hold on to that. Through his death, Jesus gives us this purity. Becky Pippert, Rebecca Pippert, Becky Pippert, wrote a book, great book, called Out of the Salt Shaker a number of years ago. If you look on the very back under four engaged groups, you'll, you'll hear a quote, you'll see a quote, I should say, from her halfway through the page. She puts it absolutely beautifully. Listen to this, listen to this. In the cross, God demonstrates the deepest law of acceptance. For to be convinced that I have been accepted, I must be convinced that I have been accepted at my worst. It's not your best day that matters, it's your worst day that matters. This is the greatest gift an intimate relationship can offer, to know that we have been accepted and forgiven in the full knowledge of who we are, an even greater knowledge than we have about ourselves. This is what the cross offers. Do you see full acceptance, complete acceptance? Not conditional acceptance, not you're in now, but don't screw it up or I'm going to boot you out. But I have paid to make you in, to bring you in, to keep you in, and it has nothing to do with how good a person you were or how good a person you're going to be 20 years, 50 years, a billion years from now. It is all complete here in the moment. I hope that if you're a true Christian, you really, really love Jesus, you really, really believe in him, I hope that you're seeing that, you know, today you're maybe a little more like Jesus than you were five years ago, if you've been a Christian that long. If you've only been a Christian two years, I hope you can say, I'm a little bit more like Jesus than I was two years ago. Now think about this. If that's the progress... How much more like Jesus will you be a billion years from now? Hopefully a heck of a lot more like Jesus than you are right now, right? Billion years, that's a fair amount of time to get some things done, work on some virtue issues in your life. And the gospel is this, Jesus will love you no more then than he loves you right now. He will accept you no more then than he accepts you right now. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. That's the issue at stake here. And the reason I'm spending so much time on the issue is, is because if you lose this, friends, if we lose this, that Jesus did everything, everything that is needed to make you acceptable or anyone acceptable to God, if we lose this, we lose the whole thing. We lose the whole kit and caboodle. The gospel has to be received. It cannot be achieved. You add anything to the gospel. Law-keeping, tithing, Bible-studying, engage group attendance, Sunday observance, anything. And you ruin it. And I am so committed to making sure you understand this that I'm going to use an object lesson. I am a totally auditory person. I don't need to see things, but I know a lot of you do. If you take 
the gospel and you add even a little bit of anything to the gospel, it will eventually infiltrate the whole gospel and make it something else. You cannot, you cannot say Jesus and anything because as soon as you say Jesus and anything, you lose Jesus and nothing. And that's the gospel. Why am I hammering on this? I'm hammering on this, friends, because, listen, the church continually slips into legalism all the time. All the time. Look at verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. What, what did Luke just say? Believers. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, if you don't know, they were a sect of the Jewish religion that were hardcore serious law-keeping. Not just hardcore serious law-keeping, but earnest, devout, okay? And it says here that out of that group, people were converted to Christianity. They came to Jesus Christ. They followed the way, and, and they were believers now. But they're the ones who come and say that you've got to follow the customs of Moses, and they want, they come all the way from Jerusalem. They go all the way up to Antioch. They go back down from Antioch to Jerusalem to this big meeting. And they stand up and they say this. Why? Because they want the Gentiles to be saved. They're not saying to themselves, hmm, I know how we can destroy this new movement. Let's slip in this doctrinal teaching. No. They're not bad people. They want the Gentiles to be saved. And yet they slip into legalism, taking away the freedom that Jesus has won for us. Now, this is maybe the first time this happens in the history of the church, but I tell you, I don't have time to give example after example, but I can promise you it is not even close to the last time. So second point. What was the points again? The reason this is such an issue. How does this happen? That's the question. How on earth does this happen? How in the world do we get to the place where we give up our freedom and return to slavery? Why would we do that? Well, here's why. Charles Spurgeon once said, we're all born legalists. And he was talking about religious people, non-religious people, all of us, because we're all born believing deep down in places we don't talk about as party, at parties that we deserve heaven or that we deserve to be happy or that we deserve the good life or that we deserve to be loved. Insert your definition of salvation. We believe deep down underneath it all that we kind of deserve it and that we can kind of earn it if we would just work at it do our best at it, we should be able to get there. And what about those people who say, well, God should just accept me anyway, as any way I am, and he should just receive me just as I am? What about them? Well, they always say, I mean, 
I talk to non-Christians and they always say, well, the reason he should is because I'm, I'm pretty good and I've tried my best. See, we're all born, every human being is born to resist grace because grace says you don't deserve heaven, the good life, happiness, to be loved, all that kind of stuff. You know what you deserve, frankly? You deserve judgment. You deserve rejection. You deserve misery. Grace is very, very hard on the human ego because grace says you are hopeless. Only God can help you now. See, grace is the only concept that I know of anyway that confronts human nature at its core. You look at the religions of the world and the systems of thought of the world, the ideologies of the world, and many of them have many good things uh, in which they confront aspects of human nature. Our selfishness or our, uh, you know, our hubris or, you know, our consumerism or our, our inability to deal with suffering or whatever. But underneath all these different systems and religions, what they actually do, do is they, they confirm, they affirm the human core. They even reinforce the human core because they say, you can get out of your problem. We can deal with this problem. We can overcome this problem simply by doing it, whatever the it is. Follow these principles, apply these teachings, do these things, these practices. And all that does is, is reinforce that innate human belief that I can do it underneath. Grace alone says you can't and it must be done for you. And we kick against it. Anybody who's ever hung out with like three and four and five-year-olds knows what I'm talking about. Because three or four-year-olds, five-year-olds, they, they don't have the filter yet, but they're certainly expressing the human nature very much. And what, can they, what do they say over and over again? I can do it myself. Here, let me help you with your toothbrush. I can do it myself. Let me help you with your shoes. I can do it myself. Let me help you cut your food on your plate. I can do it myself. That's what we're like. That's who we are. And grace confronts that at our core. Now, how do we remedy this? How do we get through this? Very quickly, I'm going to hit you with four things super fast. Here we go. Hear more sermons on grace. Well, yeah, that's, that's a good start, sure. But we can do a little bit more than that. First of all, notice what James does. James goes back to the Old Testament. He quotes in verses 15 or 16 and following, he quotes the prophet Amos. And he says, look, the prophet's been talking about this forever. Meaning, he... He went back to the story, the true story of God's relationship with the world. And, and when we read this, when we study this, when we go back to this, we are immersing ourselves in that story. That's the first thing we can do. The second thing is, is notice Peter said, look, we can't keep the law and neither could our ancestors. Now, it's sort of the same thing that James was doing. He's going back to the story of the, of the history of his people, but there's a twist to it. He talks about his personal history too. He says, we can't keep it either. He's talking about himself. He's thinking about how he denied his Savior three times when his Savior needed him most. 
We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be truthful about our failures and our shortcomings and our inability to, to be, be all that we want to be. Third thing, Peter calls this thing a yoke. He calls the law a burden. Now, that doesn't mean the law was bad. Don't confuse that with bad. The law was good in what it was meant to do. And what it was meant to do was to show us that we need a savior. It was never meant to save us. And so when we start using the law as a savior, that's when it becomes a yoke. That's when it becomes a burden. You got to remember the burdens. Remember the burdens you lived with before you were a Christian. The need to succeed, the need to please people, the need to to be all that you could be. Or, Or if you're a Christian, your tendency to rely on other things than Jesus at times. Like, I'll give you an honest example, okay? You know, I'm not gonna tell you your problems, I'll tell you my problems. So, when you're a pastor, you sometimes have it, you want everybody to be involved, okay? Like, that's what my dream is, is that, my dream is, is that it doesn't matter what the church is doing, everybody comes. Because this is your life, like, like it's mine right? This is my job, so this is all I think about all the time, is church life. And you guys actually have lives, and you're part of a church, and I, I, I get that, that you're, you're, you're divided or whatever, but there are times when I'm like, I want everybody to be at everything. And then when people don't show up, then I'm like, do they really love Jesus? <laughs> you know, I mean, they've been to two engaged groups out of eight. Do they really love Jesus? You know, they, they haven't come to, they didn't come to the Rhythm and Blues night, how can they not, how can they love Jesus and not go to the rhythm and blues night? Do you see, we, we put these things up, these extra shibboleths, identifiers, you know? Don't do that. Don't be like me. Fourth, last one. Ah, Peter says, look in verse nine, he did not discriminate between us and them, he purified their hearts by faith. We, we are not made pure by our virtue, friends, by our good works. Write this down. This is a quote from Soren Kierkegaard. It is not virtue which is the opposite of sin, but faith. It is not virtue which is the opposite of sin, but faith which is the opposite of sin. And you see, vice, okay, Vice, which we see as the opposite of virtue very often, is not actually the essence of sin either. It's unbelief. Unbelief. It's the unbelief underneath the vice. That's a whole other sermon. I can't go there. But Christians, people think Christianity is about becoming a good person. And you know how you can tell that that's totally the case? You know how many people say, when I was a kid, my parents sent me to Sunday school? They didn't go to church, they didn't go to worship, but their parents drove them to the church or kicked them out the door on, I don't know, to the local United Church or Anglican Anglican Church or whatever, and sent their kids to Sunday school. Why? Why were they being sent to Sunday school? To teach them good morals. But the opposite of sin is not virtue, it is faith. God calls us to receive his grace. You can only do that by faith. He's not calling us to be more moral. He's calling us to receive his grace by faith. 
Your chains are gone. You've been set free. Amen. Let's pray. Father, oh, Father, it is so easy for us to fall into uh, law-keeping. I'm guilty of it. Probably other people here are guilty of it too. Help us, Lord, please help us to see that we, we cling to you by grace through faith and nothing else. And when we do that, you, know, you, you start turning us into virtuous people. That's how it works. May we cling to that, believe it, and live it. In Jesus' name, amen.